This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. Hello, this is Adam Paulson welcoming you to this bite-sized bio webinar. Today's presentation is titled Consistent Error-Free Writing, Tips and Tricks for Time-Starved Scientists and is being presented by Dr. Laura Grassi from Bitesize Bio. Laura is the Content Creation Manager at Bitesize Bio. Following her PhD in Molecular Biology at the University of Dundee, Laura moved sideways into the world of scientific publishing. Her publishing career began as an assistant editor for the journal Genome Biology and her varied career since has honed her editing and writing skills. She is particularly passionate at helping others to perfect their writing and editing skills. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the top right panel of your screen, and I'll put them to Laura at the end. Details of how to access the on-demand recording of this webinar will be sent to you by email shortly. So now over to you, Laura, for the presentation. Thank you for that introduction and welcome to this tutorial sharing advice and tips for making your writing more consistent with fewer errors. Today, we'll be discussing why consistency is important, what impact inconsistency has on readers and how they view your work, strategies for overcoming inconsistency and tools to make consistency easier and faster. So what do we mean by consistency? Consistency in scientific writing means maintaining uniformity and coherence throughout your work. It involves consistent style, tone, and formatting, ensuring clear and standardized data presentation, employing consistent abbreviations, and adhering to a uniform reference format. So why does consistency matter? It's there to help your readers navigate and understand your work. Consistency is crucial because it enhances the clarity of your writing. It helps readers navigate your work seamlessly without distractions or confusion caused by inconsistent elements. The easiest way to understand why consistency is important is to think about the problems inconsistency causes. The problem of inconsistency. Inconsistent writing leads to several issues. Look at this slide, for example. There are lots of inconsistencies. And while this is obviously exaggerated here, it shows how this affects the readability of the text. If you're still not convinced, let's explain in more detail the problem inconsistency brings. Number one, decrease clarity. Consistency aids clarity by, by providing a clear and predictable structure for readers. Inconsistencies in headings, formattings, or data presentation can obscure the intended message and make it more difficult for readers to grasp key points or draw accurate conclusions. The purpose of your writing is to share your work with others and ensure they understand the correct message it is showing. Inconsistencies make this harder and mean there is an increased chance that your readers do not properly understand your work. Number two, diminished readability. Inconsistent use of abbreviations, terminology or citation styles can disrupt the flow and the readability of the text. This means readers may need to constantly reorient themselves, affecting their reading experience and comprehension. Again, this can make it much harder for you to get your message across to readers, and it can lead to frustration in those trying to read your work. If this is a grant submission or a paper for peer review, don't want to frustrate your readers. Number three, this is an important one. 
Inconsistent writing can undermine the trust and credibility readers have in you, the author. After all, consistency is a hallmark of scholarly rigor and attention to detail. Therefore, inconsistencies can raise doubts about the reliability and accuracy of the research presented, eroding trust in the author and the work as a whole. Again, this is particularly important for scientific writing, whether it's a grant application, a research paper or your thesis. You want the readers to see your, you and your work as trustworthy and credible. And four increased risk of errors. Having a consistent writing style makes it easier to spot errors in your work. Poorly formatted and structured work may make it harder to find mistakes, such as a missing figure, repeating data, or the wrong citation. Overall, inconsistency in scientific writing impedes effective communication, diminishing the professional trust, a professional image of the author and erodes reader trust. To further make the point, let's fix those irritating inconsistencies on this slide. With the inconsistencies fixed, the text is much easier to read and understand and far less distracting and frustrating. Okay, so hopefully now I've made my point about the importance of being consistent with your writing. How do you actually do this in practice? Well, there are three stages to ensuring your writing is consistent. Number one, planning. Before you even put pen to paper, or more likely fingers to keyboard, you need to properly plan for consistency. Two, during writing. Here, you need tools and mechanisms to make consistency simple and easy to enforce without getting in the way of your writing. And three, reviewing. Once you are finished writing, you should review your work after some time away and check that it is consistent. This can potentially take a lot of time and effort, but using the right tools can make it much simpler and quicker. Let's discuss each of these steps in more detail. Step one, decision time. One of the first steps to achieve consistency is to make informed decisions about various aspects of your writing and formatting. This includes choosing British versus American English, reference styles, tables and figure legend formats, heading styles, font, figure placement, and abbreviations. First, choosing between British and American English is essential for maintaining linguistic consistency throughout your paper. Determine which style is most appropriate for your target audience or the guidelines provided by the journal you're submitting to. Stick to the chosen style consistently, particularly spelling, punctuation and word usage. Another crucial decision is selecting a reference style, both for the in-text citations and the reference list. The most commonly used styles in scientific writing are APA, the American Psychological Association, MLA, Modern Language Association, and Chicago. Check the guidelines provided by the journal or consult your supervisor to determine the preferred style. Next, think about table and figure legends. These provide essential information about the context of your visual representations. Decide on a consistent format for these legends, such as placing them above or below the table or figure, and use a consistent style for labeling and numbering. Heading styles contribute to the overall structure and readability of your scientific writing. Establish a consistent hierarchy of headings, such as using bold or italic fonts for section titles, subheadings, and sub-subheadings. Determine the appropriate capitalization style, such as title case or sentence case, and stick to it consistently throughout your document. Choose and stick to a font type and size. Today's talk isn't covering if Comic Sans is a good choice for your grant applications, Hint, it's not. What we are going to say is that whatever font you choose, stick to it. Don't switch halfway through your document to a different font type. 
We aren't saying that you would do this on purpose, but it is easily done accidentally, especially if you're copying and pasting text from previous grant applications. The same goes for size. Smaller font is a visual clue that the type of text we are reading has changed. For example, we can tell a heading from normal text as it's bigger, while footnotes are smaller. This means the size and consistency of size matters. If the third paragraph of your introduction is suddenly smaller, your readers will wonder why and try to figure out the reason. While doing that, they've lost focus on your text and what you're trying to say. Consider your figures. Having a consistent placement for figures, such as placing them immediately after the first mention of the text, means readers know where to look for them without too much work. Ensuring that figure placement is logical and easy for readers to follow. And finally, abbreviations can enhance readability and conciseness in scientific writing. Just imagine if we wrote out every scientific term in full, the text would be much more cumbersome to read. However, switching between abbreviations can get confusing for readers and not defining abbreviations can lead to misunderstandings. Feeling overwhelmed? It can seem like a lot of decisions need to be made, taking up a lot of time before you've even begun. Rest assured that this is time well spent as it'll save you time and much frustration later. There are also several ways to simplify this decision process. For example, find a style guide that is already out there and use that. Check with your supervisor. They might already have a style guide or template document you can use. For companies, branding is crucial and they have detailed style guides. Institutions may also have their own style guide and templates for you to work from. If you are submitting to a journal, check out their style guides and stick to them. Nearly all journals have style guides available online. If none of these are options for you, you may need to create your own style guide, but this doesn't need to be from scratch. Check out your favorite journal. They probably have a style guide you can just use and change. And this is particularly good if this is a journal you aim to publish with frequently as you're already formatting everything correctly. We've also put together a handy PDF of decisions to make before you begin writing, so you can ensure you've made the decisions well before you need to implement them, making your writing flow easier and without distractions. Okay, now you've got your style guide. It's time to start writing. But how can you make sure you're sticking to these style decisions without breaking the flow of your writing or adding significant time to the writing process? There are lots of tools built into writing programs, including Microsoft Word and Google Docs and beyond that make sticking to a style simple and easy. There are also plenty of add-ins that can also help streamline this process. We'll be focusing on two tools in the next section, style tools and reference managers. You may be familiar with the style pane in Microsoft Word, but have you really dived into the utility of this tool and seen how it can help you keep your work consistent. Let's take a look. So here we can see a Word document and up here, you may be familiar with the styles pane. This toggle here toggles it open where you can see it. And here it lists all the styles that are already predetermined in a document. But did you know that you can add, edit, delete, reorder all of the styles in a document? This can make it much easier when applying styles and keep it consistent across a document. So if you want to create a new style, there is this A plus button at the bottom and this pop-up allows you to create a new style. 
You can name it anything you want. Be aware that Word does have some reserved names, such as Heading 1, Heading 2, for its inbuilt styles. And actually, I would recommend when you're naming it to think very carefully about where it's going to be placed in the styles pane and ease of navigating. Therefore, having a standard name, for example, here we've got BSB for Bite Size Bio, at the beginning can make it easier to find the style. The style type just tells you what kind of style it is. There is par paragraph, character, linked, table, and list. Paragraph is the most common one and means it will be applied to the entire paragraph, either by um, highlighting the whole paragraph and clicking it, or just clicking anywhere in the paragraph will apply that style. Character style, if you have specific formatting that you want to apply for individual words or parts of paragraphs, such as the first part of a figure or table legend, uh, character style is more suitable because this will not apply it to the entire paragraph, just the selected text. To make it easier to make styles, you can create styles based on other styles. For example, if you've already got a heading that you like, you can choose to base it on the heading and then just make minor changes like, okay, so this is my heading one, maybe I'm gonna make this heading two, so I'll make the point size smaller and maybe not bold. The great thing as well is you can also set the style for following paragraphs. So this means, okay, right, I've written my heading. When I hit the paragraph return mark or the return key, um, let's switch automatically to the, the BSB paragraph style because most likely I'm gonna be writing a normal paragraph. Or for example, you could set it to maybe do a heading two if you're doing an outline first. So this allows you to create all the styles that you want. If we could just create a new one here, say, example. It will then appear in the styles pane and you can easily apply it to any text. So for example here, that's just applied it here. We'll just go back to normal paragraph there. So another thing that, as we'll note in the style pane, is that you can also change um, the justification of the text, um, the line spacing and indents, uh, as well as the usual things like font, font size, bold, italic, and underline. You can also um, reorder the way these styles appear, for example, in the styles pane. So if you just click options and it, you can either select styles to show as recommended, or you can also choose them in use in current document or all styles um, and sort them as alphabetical as recommended or in various other formats to make it easier for you to see. So the great thing about styles is it makes it a lot easier to apply styles to a document. I'm meaning you're not having to think about whether or not the formatting is correct for your different headings as you go through because you've just clicked the heading style so you know it's correctly applied. The great thing is once you've created this style guide, this, um, this styles document, uh, you can easily save it as a template. To do that, you just go to file, save as, name it as whatever you want. So you could do styles template. And then you want to here click save as word template and then save. And what you can do is you can either click on that actual document. So for example, if we go here and if we were just to click on the template document, it would automatically open up a new document that's ready to be saved. You're not going to be overwriting that template document, but it already has the styles in it ready for you to go and create a new document. 
And so applying the styles, if we were to add another document here that I've already added the styles on, it's then really easy. Either you do it as you're writing or you can literally just click through as you're going through and easily apply all the styles to a document. And again, you can either do this uh, de novo as you're writing, or if you've already got a document that you hadn't created a style guide for yet, you can go through and apply the style easy. The great thing about having the style document as well is you can share it between other people in your lab, um, which means that everyone can have a similar style to uh, their documents, which can really help with keeping everything the same. Uh, I should say as well, the text that I've taken here is just from a um, Creative Commons available um, article. Any changes that I have made to this uh, in reducing errors, uh, that is just for the purpose of this presentation later. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Okay. So now we've taken a look at the styles pane. Let's take a look at reference managers, the next other tool that is really useful when you're actually writing. Reference managers are universally loved and loathed by many scientists. You'll find devotees who wouldn't deviate from their chosen app. Reference managers can seem like a tool that make more work for you, but if used correctly, they can significantly simplify adding references to your text and can help ensure that these are formatted correctly. A big barrier to uptake is the perceived time it takes to set up and populate these reference managers with citations you may wish to use. And when it comes to adding new ones in, it can seem like it takes more time than it's worth. But as with planning your styles and formatting choices, a little bit of upfront work can save a lot of time later. We don't have time today to deep dive into the different reference managers available and how to use them, but we would strongly recommend if you are not already using one to investigate the options and start. Here are just some of the popular reference managers for researchers, but there are others about there. Which one you choose will depend on your budget. Some are free, some are paid. Um, some you might find your institution already has a subscription to. It looks to depend on your computer setup. Some are available for both Mac and Windows. Some will be available only for Windows and some available only for Mac. Um, the writing software you're using, if you're, some of these actually integrate directly in Word and other writing software, making it much easier to add those references in. So check that before you um, go in to see if it's suitable for the writing program which you're using. And there will be other factors as well, such as how it stores PDFs, annotations, and sharing with other people. A great place to check is with others in your lab or department and find out what they're using. Using the same reference managers as others makes it simple to build a library, as some can have multiple users to add to a library, um, which can be a great way of building in a, in a group or a research um, laboratory, building up a joint library that everybody can access and kind of limits the amount of work it takes. Um, it also can make it much easier when you're editing someone else in your lab's work or they're editing yours because you have access to those shared libraries. But it also means that you can find help when you need it because there'll be others using that software directly around you. Spend some time trying out different reference managers to help figure out what you want before you commit. Trying to change reference managers after you've already created an extensive library is no mean feat, and we definitely wouldn't recommend it.
Okay, step three. So you've written your work. What now? It's time to edit. Editing your work is not a fun or enjoyable task. And in reality, you should always get someone else to do a proofread for you, as it is particularly challenging to proof your own work, as you often end up reading what you think should be there rather than what actually is. Even if you are able to get someone to proofread your work, you should always do a round of checking and editing yourself. This is best done at least a day or more after you've done the writing to give yourself some space. It is much easier to edit when you know what you're looking for. Using a checklist can help ensure consistency. Here is a brief example of a checklist. You can create your own or use our copy editing and proofreading checklists that are available free to you in the download. Okay, great. So you have a checklist to help you but I know what you might be thinking. Checking every abbreviation in the document to ensure they are defined on first instance and then use throughout could take a very long time. How do you even know what abbreviations you're using? And we promised you tricks to keep this process simple and short, right? And really, does it matter if your abbreviations aren't defined? Unfortunately, it does. Depending on the abbreviation you've used and the intended audience, you probably don't need to define DNA and other very universal abbreviations, but there are lots of abbreviations that have multiple definitions depending on the niche field you're in. For example, ABP can mean both androgen binding protein and actin binding protein. And you need to be careful of the ones you think are universal. As a wet lab molecular biologist, I might think surely everyone knows BSA is bovine serum albumin, right? But it can also be used to define bulk segregant analysis or body surface area. The safe decision is to always define on first instance. As I said, I know that this is potentially looking like it can take a huge amount of time to check every abbreviation. And perhaps you're gonna miss one or two that you didn't know was in there. As we said, don't worry. I'm going to show you more tools that can help shorten the time checking abbreviations and other points in the editing checklist I showed you before. So the first tool I want to show is again, another feature of Microsoft Word known as Advanced Find and Replace. So let's head over to Word. So if you're not aware of the Advanced Find and Replace, it can be found here on the Find tab, and you go open Advanced Find. You can also use Control H to open it as a short key. So you're probably familiar with the Find box, um, and allow uh, that allows you to navigate the Word document and find things. But what you might not do is when you open it, it might not have this More tab open. So if you open that up, there's this little tick called Use Wildcards. So what are wildcards? Wildcards are a way to uh, power up your search so that you can find patterns rather than just specific instances of words. So for example, in this case, I'm gonna show you how we can use it to find um, abbreviations in the document. So for example, we know that um, abbreviations are words. So this symbol here just means start of a word. And then abbreviations tend to be capitalized. So we'll say any letter between, any capital letter between A and Z. And then we're going to add in this little code. Don't worry, there's a cheat sheet that we've got available to explain these codes to you as well. Code, and this basically says at least two instances of a capital letter 
and the comma and a space means but up to as many as possible. And then again, we're just going to also say end of word here. You've got to make sure you have this use wildcards uh, button clicked, otherwise nothing's going to happen. And then what you want to do is click on the find in main document. And then what it's going to do is it's actually going to go through and highlight all instances of um, abbreviations that it's found. Now, this is great because what you can do is you can X out of that and it will still keep them highlighted. If you control copy, file blank document, control paste, it will now give you a list of all the abbreviations in the document. And what you can do as well, if you highlight them all, you can click sort, sort by paragraphs text, and then it will put them in alphabetical order. Now you can manually go through and delete all of the duplicates like this if you want to, or if you're feeling particularly um, techie, you can copy and paste it into Excel where you can, there's actually a button to remove duplicates. Now you may have noticed that it hasn't highlighted all the abbreviations. So sometimes you'll need to use multiple different um, wildcard searches. So I'm going to just, just control H to open up the dialog box again. And instead, this time, I'm going to do a slightly more complicated one that's also going to look for uh, numbers as well as letters. So, for example, here, I'm going to say have at least one capital letter to begin with, and then have either a number or a capital letter afterwards. And again, at least one instance of that, but because the comma and then it's after is blank, um, it's saying. Um, you can have more than that, and let's add in the end and beginning of words as well. Okay, so again, already, and if we're doing the find, find in main document. You can also limit it to current selection. So, example, if you're just doing it chapter by chapter or want to exclude your reference list, you can highlight the text first. Uh, but we're going to be doing main document. And again, the useful thing, it also gives you how many that you found up here. So here we found 346 items. Okay, so again, you can do the same thing. Control copy, open up your other document, scroll down to the bottom and add that in. And that's an easy way to find all your abbreviations. And then what you can do is you can either go through um, one by one and, and check them in Word, again, using the search to make sure they appear on first instance. Um, useful tool as well you could even make a table in here with the abbreviation and the full form and then you've got a list of abbreviations already created fairly simply and then with the full forms you can go through and make sure those appear only once in your document if you want them to be defined on first instance only um and as i said the handy when you open up the find um make sure you're on the find tab say we were looking for e1 so let's look for post translational modification. A note here about wildcards. If you have wildcard clicked, it will automatically make things case sensitive, even if you type typing out full words. So make sure you use wildcards unticked when you want to actually look for the full words, but don't mind it being in, um, you, you want to maybe consider being able to find a capitalized version as well. And again, find in main document. Ah, so here we can see it's actually hyphenated, so that's why it wasn't coming up. If we put it in then, find in main document, 
And you can see we've actually got five instances of it. So we might want to go through and check. Again, you can go through find next. The dialog box keeps moving. Okay, so here, it, okay, so it's been defined in each section first and in the title. And then we've got it in reference list. So actually, this has only been defined on first instance in each of the sections. So that would be fine. So as well as using this to do things to find abbreviations, there are lots of other things you can do with wildcards. There are some other really interesting um, features of the advanced find and replace. And this is this go to tab. For example, let's say you want to kind of check that your, your figure legends are correct. You could scroll through the document looking for them, which could take you time. Or you can go to the go to graphic, enter the graphic number, start at one. And it will take you immediately to the first graphic in the document. And then if you want to cycle through, you can just do the one plus and then click enter and it will just go to each graphic one at a time. So there's graphic two. Oh, look, you can check the figure legends and then click enter again. Figure three, figure four, figure five and figure six. We can easily see that they are therefore all the figures are correct in terms of all got the figure uh, correct figure numbers for them. So that's an easy way to check your figure numbers. And you could do the same with tables as well, footnotes and other features in Word. So that's a really uh, nice other way to, to, to be able to use the advanced finder in place. Okay, so here is just a brief recap of wildcards in Word. So these allow you to make much more complicated searches and allow you to search for patterns rather than defined instances. For example, here again, um, the less than symbol, beginning of a word, greater than symbol, end of a word. Um, the square brackets means one of the characters specified within, which can include ranges. Uh, the squiggly brackets means number of occurrences. A question mark can mean any character one instance of any character and the asterisk can mean zero or more characters. There are other features uh, of wildcards as well um, and again we've got that included in the a guide to the wildcards included in the do download document and wildcards are kind of a variation of something that's even more powerful known as regex or regular expressions and other software uses versions of these. Google Docs has its own versions as well. It's not quite as powerful as the one that comes in um, in with Word, um, but that is available as well. And other software, including InDesign, um, also have versions of um, these ability to do regular expressions and searching for patterns rather than just fixed text. So there are lots of ways that you can use wildcards to aid in editing. I've shown you one there with the abbreviations, but there are lots more um, versions. For example, you can uh, use it for finding and fixing punctuations around references. For example, you might want to move the punctuation to before the reference, citation in text or after, depending on the style. That is, again, easily done by wildcards. Um, again, making sure the punctuation is appearing at the end of your paragraphs, um, finding and removing double or multiple spaces or removing spaces at the start of paragraphs. Again, wildcards and advanced find replace can help with all of these. So again, check out the free download for a cheat sheet which as well as including the detailed uh, terminology for the different um, symbols that you use for wildcards and what they mean, it also includes examples of searches that we found useful and think other people might find useful as well. So 
a bit of a caution here. Wildcards are fantastically powerful and learning how to use them well can save you hours of work. Um, but we should add a note of caution, particularly in reference to the replace all button. Something I didn't show you in there, but you can obviously do a wildcard where you can find certain stuff and then do replaces. It is really easy to write a wildcard that works for your intended purpose, but that makes other changes that you haven't foreseen in your document. And this can lead to quite damaging consequences and can very easily introduce hundreds of errors into your document. And this is something that I'm speaking from experience in the past. I've seen how wildcards can be quite damaging if applied incorrectly. So unless you are 100% definitively sure that your find and replace works as intended, don't use replace at all. And in fact, I would go as far to say, even if you think that, don't use replace all. Um, instead, cycle through each instance and one by one make the change. However, if you um, really do decide to go the replace all route, perhaps there's just too many instances and you know it's going to save you a lot of time. What I would really recommend is setting a formatting change, such as a color change or a highlight um, to change any replace text, um, because you'll be better able to see if there were any unintended consequences. So if we just switch back to Word, so what I mean by changing formatting is here in the replace box, if you click in there, you can replace formatting and you can select highlight. If you do that, you need to make sure you have a highlighting color selected here for it to change. And that means that all those instances will be highlighted uh, when you do the replace all, which is another feature. Um, and while I'm here, I'm just going to say as well, one of the things that we mentioned previously about was the utility of styles and how important styles are um, for helping consistency in a document. They can also really help the editing stage because you can actually search by style when you're doing find. So let's say, for example, um, in a heading. Let's make sure I've actually set the headings in this style, otherwise it won't work. Um, and make sure that I've clicked off the highlight. So let's make sure that's set to be a heading two, say, for example. So, for example, if we wanted to check our headings and make sure actually they were set to title case, which means that every um, new word starts with a capital letter, I could, again, make sure my wildcards are set and I could set it to look for a space because we want a new word or we could do the start of a word and we could do a cap, um, a lowercase letter because this case we're looking for instances that are wrong. And then we'd set the format the style and choose the heading that we were looking for. And find next would be able to easily see any instances where this wasn't conforming correctly. And you'd be able to easily go through and um, correct it. Um, so again, adding this is another reason why adding styles to a document is very powerful. Again, for example, if you had a search that was very specific to your references to help with uh, styling your reference formatting, you could make sure your references had a particular um, reference format um, like here, and then you'd be able to limit your searches uh, just to that format as well. Okay, so the other thing I wanted to discuss is there are a variety of plugins or add-ins that are available for um, things such as Microsoft Word, but also other uh, writing um, software out there. One of the most well-known is Grammarly. It allows you to easily set the language of editing and depending on what package you get, uh, will give you tips to make your writing more readable and make better sense as well as picking up errors. Uh, these are great plugins. They really can make it easier to do the editing process. Um, but I will say there's a word of caution with such of these plugins. They're not specific to scientific writing. 
And something that we found in particular is that they may flag sentences, words or phrases and suggest edits and changes that may make it actually incorrect for scientific writing. Um, one of the things that we find, for instance, is they often flag passive voice and suggest changes to make it more active, which doesn't work for a lot of scientific writing, especially with the way materials and methods are reported. It's done in the passive voice um, and that's just scientific invention. Um, we've also found in the past that words that have a special meaning in science. And there was actually a Twitter thread uh, not long ago that kind of a brilliant Twitter thread that we reposted on our Twitter feed that went through all the words that can mean one thing to uh scientists and uh mean another thing to to people who don't work in the lab uh like gel um and various other things uh such as that so what can happen here is they can be flagged as being used incorrectly but actually they are correct in scientific writing so this means you shouldn't just go through if you're using these plugins and accept every suggestion uh, that they come up, but you need to use your own judgment and decide, mm, thanks for that suggestion, Grammarly, but you're actually not right for this situation. And this is about building your own confidence. Uh, they're also, what I would say is they're a fantastic tool for learning and improving your own grammar. Um, they are great because you should be, what you should be doing is every suggestion that comes up trying to understand, okay, why is Grammarly saying this? Um, or whichever plugin it is you're using, why are they suggesting this change? Um, that enables you to understand why and then hopefully improve your writing going forward, um, but also make the decision whether or not you agree with it. And again, don't just make decisions because uh, you uh, think Grammarly said it was right and therefore you must use it. So we've gone through a lot today. We've shown you some tools, we've highlighted some of the, the, the reasons, uh, and it all can seem a bit overwhelming. And also, I've only shown you the kind of surface level, a lot of these tools. There's a huge amount of ways you can use things like styles and advanced find and replace and plugins. This is just here to kind of showcase you the kind of things that are available and that can make your life far easier when it comes to getting consistent writing. But as a reminder, there are three main steps for consistent writing. There is the planning, which means before you even put pen to paper, you need to properly plan for consistency by creating your own style guide or using one that's already available from a journal or institution. During writing, you should be using style tools and reference managers and other tools to make sure you can easily enforce consistency throughout your work um, by referring to those uh, chosen style guides as well. And those tools should make that easier. And finally, reviewing as much as it is painful and seems unnecessary, and even you may be getting someone else to review it, you still need to take some time to review your own work after writing. Ideally, give it a day or two, to have a break away from it at first to clear your head. Um, make sure you're using the tools that we've shown you, like advanced find and replace, work wildcards to identify and address consistency issues. Um, and uh, using your style guide and your editing checklist. All of these things can help make sure that you keep um, on track with your editing. Sometimes it can feel like you're mindlessly going through a document and you're not quite sure what you're supposed to be looking at. You maybe just do one read from one to top and think that's enough. Uh, but having a checklist can make sure you've really thought about the consistency elements that are important to you or important to the journal you're submitting to. And don't forget, you can use add-ins and plugins such as Grammarly to help identify inconsistencies in your writing, but be cautious with these and make sure you understand the suggestion and agree with the change. Okay, that's everything from me. I hope you found this presentation useful and that the download that we've supplied is full of useful things for you as well. Uh, now it's time, does anybody have any questions? 
Well, thank you very much, Laura. That was an excellent presentation, very clear. <clears throat> we have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to uh, post them in the question box, uh, which is uh, you can find in the top right of your screen. Uh, before we go into the questions, Laura, I believe you wanted to follow up on a, a really uh, appropriate comment from one of our audience members, Patricia. Uh, yeah, so Patricia, while we were doing the talk, uh, put a question, uh, something in the question box saying uh, a plea from an EIC. Please use as few abbreviations as possible in your work. As we move to a global scientific community, the use of acronyms makes it difficult for international readers to understand your work. Uh, Adrian Barnett and Zoe uh, Doubleday published a meta-analysis in eLife in 2020, examining the exponential growth of acronyms in scientific literature. Few are ever used more than 10 times. Only a few thousand are used regularly. Uh, if you want your work to have max impact right terms out and I think this is a really good point to highlight um, and again you can use this through the advanced find and replace um, and the searching it when you're searching for specific ones you can actually see how many times you're using it in a document and one thing I would suggest is if you're only using it once or twice just write it out in full because um, there's no need to, to, to put it in an acronym acronyms are great for helping declutter your work especially with like chemical names or really long scientific terminology um, or things like DNA where everybody knows DNA over that but um, Otherwise, um, it can actually cause uh, confusion. So thank you for that, Patricia. Hmm. Thanks, Laura. OK, so over to the first question. Uh, so uh, you mentioned the, 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 the download, which I hope everyone has been able to access and, and download from, from your, uh, your screen. Uh, so in the download, uh, I had a question myself, actually, and this was uh, about the, the wildcards, uh, curly brackets N, curly brackets NM and the at wildcards. How do those ones work? Uh, so those are all basically just telling you number of instances. So if you put something, say, in the square brackets to say um, like the A to Z like it did, that will just count one instance of that. So it will be looking for one capital letter. The squiggly brackets, if you just put one number in there, it's looking for exactly that number of instances of capital letters. So if you put um, uh, a three in the squiggly brackets, it will look for three instances of a capital letter. If you say want to look for at least two instances of a capital letter, but also anything above that, that's where you'd put the two comma nothing in the end. Um, if you wanted to set, you only wanted to find instances of uh, at least two capital letters, but only up to five, you would do two comma five. And then that at symbol just means um, as many as possible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, great. Okay, um, so the next question, this is a good one. Uh, can I use uh, wildcards in Google Docs? And does your sheet, cheat sheet cover this? So um, I mentioned before that various other applications have versions of this. It's all based on something called regular expressions, um, which there are some software that actually uses it in its pure form. Um, but each software tends to kind of have their own version. Google Docs um, is different from Word. And no, I haven't covered that in the handout. If that's something people uh, would like, uh, let me know and I can send, when we send emails around uh, after this webinar, I can point people to uh, where they can find that information. Um, the one thing I would say as well is if you've got a choice between say Word and Google Docs, I would highly recommend Word. It's much more powerful than Google Docs. Uh, there's a lot um, more things that you can do, which will make it easier for the editing process. However, if Google Docs is all you have available, um, then it does still have some of this functionality as well. Okay, thank you. 
Right, so uh, there's two questions around uh, reference managers. Um, not sure about them, but basically, the, uh, which reference managers are most user-friendly or which reference managers are user-friendly for Windows users? I'm not sure if you had any insight on that. <laughs> so there's, again, it's one of those things where it's kind of like reference managers are a bit like Marmite. You either love them or hate them, depending on the different ones. And I've definitely found throughout the time that ones that I have loved, other people have not for various reasons. One of the things is that reference managers often have multiple functions through sharing, annotating PDFs, where they store them, how you can add citations from them. Some of them have plugins that you can put into your browser, which makes it really simple to add in citations, um, how they interact with uh, editors such as Word. Um, obviously, if you're going to be adding a lot of references and using Word, you want one that has a plugin into Word. Um, Wikipedia actually has a great page with all the reference managers and lots of tables explaining where they're good and where they're bad. So I'd highly recommend that. Um, that being said, I would probably say that my opinion from what many people in the scientific world use would be Zotero. Um, if you want one to start off with, um, I would definitely recommend trying out Zotero. As a lot of academics use it, it was created by academics initially. Um, we're, that's just one that I found quite good. It's got a word plugin, and I believe it's got a plugin that you can put in your browser to easily add stuff to the Zotero library as well. And you can also add um, multiple users. So it's one of those ones that you can build a library for the lab. So um, if you just want one that I recommend, I'd go with that. But do chat to other people around you, um, because if you all use the same reference manager in your lab, it will make your life a lot easier. Yeah, good point. And actually, it's worth pointing out as well to the audience that uh, we do have a number of articles under the uh, Managing Your Scientific Literature Hub on Bartsas Bio that specifically cover each of the, the main reference managers uh, that are used by, uh, by researchers. And so these have been tested and articles have been written about. Them. So it's well worth checking out those articles on the Bartsas Bio website. Um, okay. So uh, you mentioned the plugins, and this is a, a good question that's come in. What about checking the spelling of scientific terms, for example, chemicals and, and names? Yeah, so this is, I think, something that, that causes a lot of problems for people, especially uh, people who are, are not great at spelling, <laughs> which um, I would say myself, I, you know, is not always something that I found easy, especially scientific terminology. There are um, obviously built-in um, spell checkers don't account for scientific terminology and that's something you need to be aware of um, and this is true for a lot of the plugins as well they just don't cover that in their their spell checkers which can make spell checking uh, very very difficult however most of these features allow you to add to your own dictionary and i would highly recommend you use that um, and you can build again custom dictionaries can be shared in word between people so you could build one as a lab um, there are also ones that people have built for specific areas of um biology or sciences, for example, chemical uh, chemical um, dictionaries or um, Latin terminology dictionaries or biological terminology di dictionaries that very kind souls have created and have, a, have made available free on the internet. So just have a search, see what you find. Use these with caution. Obviously, you don't necessarily know how they've, they've, they've done them. You, you know, when you're using them, just be careful with that. But it is great that, you know, people have, have done that out there to make life easier. Um, but if in doubt, maybe just build your own one. It might take a bit of time, but especially if you're planning to be an academic for a long time, uh, it can be very beneficial. And again, you can share it with other people in your lab. Okay, thank you. Uh, right. Uh, I think we've got time for one more question, uh, Laura. Uh, so this one, I think, is very good as well. How do you suggest researchers handle feedback and criticism about their writing? And how can they use that to improve their, their future work? I know this is something I really <laughs> So I think the best 
thing about feedback is trying to remember that nobody's perfect. Um, no matter how long you've been writing for, editing for, uh, even myself, I definitely make mistakes. Um, and it, feedback is how you learn and how you improve and how you grow. And it is therefore um, really important to take that on board. Don't see it as criticism. Um, see it as an opportunity for growth and becoming better. Um, it also depends on how the feedback is given. Some people aren't the most tactful when they give feedback, and that can be quite difficult to take. Um, but most feedback generally comes from a place of wanting to make you better and help you, not to um, put you down. So, yeah, take it on board. Um, what I find is quite useful is having a little document with feedback that when I'm going through my work, I can, and editing my own work, I then look at that feedback document and I can remember the things that I slipped up on previously and remember therefore to go and check those. Um, I always personally like to be, I don't mind people flagging up errors. I just don't like those errors to keep occurring. <laughs> okay, great. All right, then. Well, I think that uh, that brings us to the end of, of today's webinar. Laura, thanks again for a, a really uh, interesting and uh, illuminating webinar and a great discussion. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. So until next time, good luck with your writing and your research and goodbye from all of us at Bite Size Bio. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar, or to browse the listening series, please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. 